This Lord's Day, we continue our series, Walk Through the Bible, Introduction to the Holy Scriptures, book by book. And today we're in the book of Numbers, The Tragic Tale of Unbelief. This message is a re-recording of the sermon that I preached earlier today, and we had some technical difficulties, so I am preaching it again here from my office and for your, I hope, benefit as we continue to learn what the whole counsel of God has to say to us. So please open your worship folder to page 7, and we are going to look at the overview of numbers. Before I uh, read through that with you, I want to say that when I think of the book of Numbers, I think of Numbers as the place where Bible reading plans go to die. The place where Bible reading plans go to die. And why do I mean that? You know, we read through Genesis and we get really excited because we have creation. We have all sorts of interesting stories at the beginning. The flood, the tower of Babel. We have the patriarchs and the early covenant promises that God made to them. And it's wonderful. We get to Exodus, another great book. Uh, wonderful drama with God delivering his people out of the hand of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He leads them to Sinai, and it's all exciting and dramatic. Then we get to Leviticus, and oh man, now we start to get a bunch of sacrifices that we don't understand, and there's a lot of bulls and goats and hyssop and and blood and cubits and laws and things that feel very foreign to us. And so we start maybe to lose a little bit of interest. And by the time we get to numbers and all the censuses, all the, all the counting, all the repetition, it's very easy to give up at that point in your Bible reading. Now I'm going to show you today that it is vital that we read the Old Testament. It's vital that we understand books like numbers because they in fact have a prominent place in the New Testament. And some of the most profound and important text in the New Testament center in on what Numbers records. So we will look at that later today as we study this book. It is a vital story for the Christian life, and it is imperative that we pay attention. So let's look at the overview of Numbers, which I have here on the inside uh, cover of the bat, of the worship folder, page 7. And let's look at this quick. What is Numbers all about? The melodic line of Numbers, as I've written it, is as follows. Rebellion has consequences. The book of Numbers records the tragic story of the failure of God's people to enter the promised land. The consequence of Israel's continuous rebellion to God, his servants, and his law was 40 years of wilderness wandering and the death of an entire generation. Nevertheless, God was faithful to bring his people to the promised land, even as he gave us a greater leader than Moses to bring us into the greater land. The New Testament understands Israel's rebellion as the sin of unbelief, which results in the failure to enter the new creation rest in heaven. And this tragic story was written for us that we might not desire evil as they did. As far as a literary structure goes, numbers can be divided very simply into three parts. We have Camp Sinai at the beginning. The people have been there since Exodus 18 and 19 and following. They're still there a year later. The second part deals with the journey to the promised land, and specifically the wilderness journey and rebellion and its consequences. We're going to see that over and over again in the middle section. And then the third section, and final section, uh, places us at Camp Moab, where Israel is on the eastern border of the promised land waiting to get in. And there's a new generation there hoping to get in to the land. So that is the overview of Numbers. The big idea this morning is that Numbers tells the story of the tragic tale of unbelief.
belief. We're going to look at this uh, book in two parts today. We're going to look first at the story of the tragic tale as Numbers records it. So we'll look at the narrative of Numbers. And then our second point, we'll be looking at how the New Testament understands and applies the tragic tale to us as believers today. So that's where we are going this morning. So let's begin with how Numbers records this tragic tale. Numbers opens up with Israel at Camp Sinai getting ready to go into the Promised Land. The first thing we see in Numbers is a census of Israel's warriors. Uh, Every male 20 years old and up who is able to fight in Israel's army. And so right as we begin, we are reminded that there is going to be a lot of war and a lot of battle that's about to take place as Israel takes over the land that God has given to them. As we look at the numbers, Israel has over 600,000 men who are able to fight in the army. It's a huge number. Scholars then, based on that number, reckon that Israel was about 2 million people strong. About 2 million people strong uh, based on those numbers. Israel, in other words, was well supplied to take on the land. The Lord had blessed them time and time again. They have been fruitful and multiplied and all of this is in accordance with God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis that his people would be fruitful and multiply and that God would lead them into the land that he had promised Abraham. And now we are here at the very moment. So we see in uh, this first section that there are a lot of various numbers uh, dealing with the Levites and the arrangement of the clans and the camps and... um, about Aaron and the priests and their duties. One thing I want to point out here is we learn that in chapter 1, verse 53, that the Levites are exempted from fighting in the war because they have another kind of duty that is even more important than an army. We read in verse 53 where it says that, But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. In other words, we see that Israel's fighting men, their duty was to protect the Israelites from external enemies. Where the Levites had the duty to protect Israel from the wrath of God himself. That is, that the worship of God's people... Uh, the worship of Yahweh by God's people is even more, far more important than what any army can do to protect the borders. In fact, uh, you can have the biggest army in the world, but if you are godless and you are uh, disobeying the commandments of God, it doesn't matter because God's coming after you and God's going to take you out. And so the Levites had a special and particular duty to guard the holy things and the holy worship of Yahweh, the I am what I am. So as we move through the first section of the numbers at Camp Sinai, we see that the Israelites are well supplied. God has given them everything that they need. Then as we come to chapters 5 to 10, we see a number of further commands and preparations that deal with preparing the hearts and preparing the people for going into the Holy Land at last. I want to point out just uh, three things here as we uh, round out this first part of, uh, of Numbers with Camp Sinai. One is one of the most significant parts of this section is when God calls the priests, Aaron and the priests, to put his name on his people. And there we have the famous blessing that we all know. In chapter 6, verse 22, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And when we think about this idea of peace, of blessing, of grace, of peace, this word is not what we typically think of it in the West when we talk about peace. When we talk about peace, we talk about things like peace and quiet, or um, peace meaning you're not in some kind of hostile situation with somebody else, you know there's relative peace and calm. But the idea of peace in Hebrew is much more robust. The word uh, in Hebrew is shalom, and it means uh, whole. It means to be whole. It's this idea of holistic well-being, where mind, body, soul, and relationships with others with yourself and with God, is perfectly whole and healthy. And this idea is picked up in the New Testament as well, when the apostles frequently say things like, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, being reminded that ultimate shalom will only come from God and through Christ. But at this juncture, The name of Yahweh, the great I Am, is put on the people of God as they're getting ready to enter the land. Two other things that I should point out here. In chapter 9, we see the second Passover celebrated. And this shows us that Israel was at Camp Sinai for about a year because they celebrated the first Passover in Egypt. They came out because God delivered them to Mount Sinai. And now it is already the beginning of the second year. And they celebrate the Passover. And they're reminded of God's great act of deliverance to take them through the sea and deliver them out of the most powerful hand in the ancient Near East, the hand of Pharaoh. And after that, God... uh, prepares them, and we have a teaching in chapter 9, the second half, on the cloud. The Lord's cloud would guard and protect the people, and when the cloud would set out, they would go, and it would stop, they would stop. And that's how it worked. That's how they knew where they were to go. And in chapter 9, verse 15, it says, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. And in due course then here, the cloud sets out and the people of God leave for the promised land. At this point, we would think that Israel is completely set up for success. Completely set up for success. They should have no want of any provision and any need to get into the promised land. All of this then sets us up for the unbelievable tragedy that is about to ensue. As the ark sets out and the cloud departs, we read in chapter 10, verse 35, that Moses says, said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. What a grand and amazing way to begin the journey. I mean, I shudder as I read it. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. 
and let those who hate you flee before you. Imagine how excited the Israelites must have been. They've been in the wilderness around Sinai in the desert for a year. God delivered them through the sea. God provided for them manna in the wilderness. God has allowed them to be fruitful and multiply. They have a strong army and they are a mighty people and they are setting out with Moses as their leader. And yet, what happens? What is the next thing that happens? We read in chapter 11, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. We should be in a moment of triumph, and yet the first thing the Israelites do is complain about their misfortunes. Grumbling is going to be a major part of Israel's story in this tragic tale. So now we are in the second part of Numbers, the journey through the wilderness, and we're going to see that the redounding theme in this section is rebellion. Rebellion happens again and again. In fact, this section gives us seven separate episodes where Israel rebels against God or his leaders or his law. And it's going to lead to grave tragedy. So in chapters 10 and 11, God's people are setting out. They're complaining about their misfortunes. So God provides for them yet again. He provides quail. Uh, He provides further elders to help Moses. And as we're getting to the very borders of the promised land, what happens? Even Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. And so the Lord strikes Miriam with leprosy. In 12.14, we see uh, it is recorded that, but the Lord said to Moses, referring to Miriam in the, uh, let me just say one more thing before I read it, referring to Miriam and the the level of uh what's the word i'm trying to say the le- the level of the the social improprieties of what she did are on full display here when the lord says in verse 14 but the lord said to moses if her father had but spit in her face should she not be shamed 7 days Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So not a great way to get to the border of the promised land. It took the Israelites a short time to get from Sinai to the land. Scholars debate on different amounts of time, but it's probably only took at most a couple weeks. A lot of it depends on where you place Mount Sinai. Um, Most scholars today place Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, but there is also very good evidence that Sinai is actually in the Arabian Peninsula. And it uh, depends on which sea you think the Israelites crossed and and so forth. Um, I I tend to think that it is in Arabia, uh, and the main reason for that is that the Apostle Paul says that Sinai is in Arabia in the book of Galatians. But that will be a discussion for another time. I would recommend that you watch the Patterns of Evidence videos. There's one on the Exodus and one on uh, did Moses write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And the third one is on the Red Sea crossing. And it's very excellent. And there's going to be another one that comes out on the location of Sinai. And I think you would find uh, that resource very helpful, those uh, three documentaries. So I'll leave that at that. But at any rate, we are on the border of the promised land at last. 
And what do we find? We find rejoicing and obedience. This generation that saw God deliver them through the sea and provide for them in the wilderness. What is going to happen at the border? And here we find, unfortunately, rebellion at the border and the whole generation is forbidden entrance into the land. As it happens, uh, spies are sent out, one spy for each tribe of Israel. Twelve spies go into the land, and they find that it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a fruitful and abundant land. And yet there are also numerous peoples. And the spies come back and say it's a great land, but there are big people. There are fortresses and strongholds. And they made the people tremble. Only Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, hey, we have this. The Lord is with us. Let's take the land. But everybody else trembles and grumbles. And we read in chapter 14, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know that the, they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity, forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And then we read in the next verse, And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. And so Israel seems to then have temporarily gotten the message that they screwed up. But then what do they do? They say, okay, we will follow God. They do not. They try to take the land anyways. And the end of chapter 14 shows Israel suffering a humiliating defeat because they defied God. They defied God. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So we have... Rebellion at the border. Rebellion number one. Did they get the message after this? They did not. In chapter 15, we find more rebellion. There is a man working on the Sabbath who is stoned to death because he has violated the Sabbath of God. Did Israel get the message at that point? They did not. In chapter 16, we have Korah's rebellion in chapter 16, Korah and his, and his people got jealous of Moses and Aaron. Why, did, why are they the only ones who get to offer sacrifice before the Lord? We're all priests. We should all be able to do this. And they question the Lord and they question Moses' leadership. So what happens? Moses tells them, all right, here's what we're going to do. 
He said, They arose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled against they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to them. Do this, take censers, Kor and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And so the next morning they do as Moses commanded. And the Lord wipes out the 250 men. They are killed and extinguished. And the ground opens up and consumes them. And they are no more. What happens after this? Do the Israelites fear God and fear Moses? They do not. They rebel now a fourth time. They complain to Moses and Aaron, You have killed our people. You have killed our people. How dare you, to put it in my own words. We see in uh, 1641, But on the next day, all the people, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of the congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces, and Aaron quickly rose up to intercede for the people of God, but not before 14,700 of them died in a plague that the Lord had set out. More rebellion, more tragedy, more fatal consequences of unbelief. After that, what do we see? We see that the Lord gives the Israelites a sign against rebels. He makes Aaron's staff bud so that they would know to fear Moses and Aaron to show his approval of these guys. Did that sign work out? Did it stop the rebellion? It did not. We move on. We see more rebellion at Meribah at chapter 20. After the death of Miriam, the Israelites rebel yet again. And in 20 verses 2 and 3, we read, Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water. And Moses at this point has to be furious. I think we can put ourselves in his shoes and just say, I would be sick and tired of these people. And the Lord commands Moses to speak to the rock and he would provide water for the people. But rather than speak to the rock, Moses strikes the rock two times and water does come out. But Moses's actions cost him everything. Because Moses did not obey the Lord's command, but rather took it upon himself to fulfill what the Israelites needed in his own way, Moses and Aaron were forbidden to lead God's people into the land. We read this, this tragic account in chapter 20, verses 10 to 13. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, 
Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. And here we have a tragic and cautionary tale for ministers. It is the job of the leaders of God's people to uphold the Lord's holy. And the way we uphold the holiness of the Lord is by teaching all of his commands faithfully, and fully, not going to the right or to the left, as so many man-pleasers do today, of basing their message on what they think the people want, what they think is relevant to the people today. They don't even preach the word book by book and chapter by chapter. They preach based on felt needs, and they are sullying the glory and the holiness of God and making a mockery of God by failing to do what the leaders of God's people are called to do. And even Moses, who is called the faithful servant, failed. And we see here that we need a greater leader than Moses. And we need a greater leader than any pastor you may ever have. We need Christ, the only one who can perfectly and faithfully fulfill God's law. And lead us into the true land, the new heavens and the earth, which we will talk about a little bit later. Well, did these guys get it after this? They did not. We have a sixth episode of rebellion in chapter 21 regarding uh, Israel's rebellion and the bronze, bronze servant. We see in 21... And I should say, before I get into this rebellion, the Israelites just experienced their first victory over the Canaanites in the first three verses of this chapter. You would think they would be, yes, the Lord is with us. This is, this is going great. God is with us. What happens next? Unimaginable rebellion. Again, 21.4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery servants among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And at even at, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God was faithful to a rebellious and obstinate people. Yet again, that's the sixth recorded rebellion during this section of Numbers. Well, what happens after that? We read of a number of victories in chapter 21, in the Song of the Well, and we see two nations on the border of the land of Canaan and the Transjordan region, defeated King Sion and King Ode, and then Balak, who's the king of Moab, gets worried. So he summons the prophet for hire, the infamous Balaam. Balaam the prophet. And Balak hires Balaam to curse the people of God. But rather than curse them, the Lord puts his words in the mouth of Balaam, and all he can do is bless the people of Israel. And we read uh, four oracles that Balaam gives after the famous uh, Balaam and the donkey scene where uh, the Lord speaks 
to Balaam through the mouth of an ass, through the mouth of the donkey. And uh, he opens his eyes to see the angel of Yahweh. But Balaam is basically a guy who is a prophet for a hire. He says if you, his, his basic MO is like, hey, I can speak to any of the gods. I can do what you want. If you need blessing, you need cursing, I can do this. And uh, you pay me and I will, I will get the job of divination done for you. And that's why Balak is going for Balaam. But Balaam is himself under the control of Yahweh and there's nothing that he can do but say blessings for the people. At this point, we see God's provision, God's faithfulness, his forgiveness, his mercy, his protection over the peace of Israel. We see these we see these amazing victories on the border of the promised land. At this point, would Israel be faithful? Would they get it? Would they know that the Lord is God and he will come through? They don't. And we get a seventh and final episode of rebellion in these 40 years. We see in chapter 25 national rebellion, a national apostasy at Peor in Moab. And we also see the zeal of Phineas, the zeal of Phineas. We read this horrible account in chapter 25. And starting in verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And when we say whore with the daughters of Moab, what they're doing is participating in the fertility cult religion of Moab. And all of the ancient Near Eastern religions had fertility cult elements. And often in these fertility cult elements, there would be cultic prostitutes. And the whole idea is that if you slept with these prostitutes, that would give allow the gods to bring rain on your land and make your crops fertile and make you have many children and make you prosper. So we read this horrible tragedy that Israel is now whoring with the daughters of Moab. We read in verse 2, these invited, these daughters of Moab invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal at Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away. From Israel, And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And they did that. And this idea of hung is not with a noose, like with a rope, but it's on a sharp, pointy pole stuck in the ground, and they would impale people on it. The ancient Near Eastern world was a brutal place, and they needed brutality to learn lessons. And even God's hard-hearted people needed the brutality of this lesson because of the egregious nature, the vile nature of their sin while on the borders of the Holy Land. So the Lord tells Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them, impale them in the sun before the Lord. And after this, the congregation weeps. They are filled with sorrow as they ought to be. But we read in verse 6, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation and the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by plague were 24,000. Can you imagine this? These executions that just happened because of this horrendous whoring by God's people 
They're weeping, Moses and the congregation before the tent. And some bloke comes along with one of the whores of Moab to sleep with her, goes in the tent, is most likely having intercourse with her. And Phineas, with holy zeal, grabs a spear and pierces them through. But what an ugly, what a ugly and sordid tragedy to end this wilderness wandering in these 40 years in the desert. This generation, this generation that was delivered by the Lord through the Red Sea, failed and rebelled and grumbled time and time again. Let that be a warning to all of us against grumbling and against unbelief. But for Phineas, the Lord promised him, Phineas of Aaron and of the Levites, an eternal priesthood. And he is commended for his holy zeal in the face of this audacious sin. So that is the second part of Numbers. Journey through the wilderness, rebellion, and its consequences. Now we come to the third section of Numbers, and we'll go through this a little bit more briefly. The third section parallels the first section in the sense that we have a census of the new generation. So this third section begins just like the first section began with a census. And we see that the Israelites have about 600,000 men. So we have about probably about the same number as when they started, when you add the men and the women and the children. But the scriptures are clear here that everyone in that first generation died according to the words of the Lord. We read in 26, 63 and following, those these were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these men, uh, but among these, there was not one of those listed by Aaron, Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. And then, just like the first part of Numbers, after the census, we have further commands and preparations, including that Joshua will succeed Moses as the leader of God's people, one of the faithful spies who is ready to take God's people in the land in the first place. I want to just say uh, two more things quickly in this last section. We see in chapter 31, vengeance on Midian. The Midianites, of course, caused the Israelites to yoke themselves to Baal. And here comes Balaam yet again at this point in chapter 31. We read that Balaam was actually the instigator of this whoring incident. We read in verse 15, Moses said to them, uh, Have you let all the women live? And by the way, before I keep reading, uh, the Israelites did not kill the women. They thought, let's keep the women for ourselves. They were supposed to kill the women too. That's why Moses says, have, have you let all the women live? And then Moses goes on, behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord Balaam, the prophet for hire, led Israel into the whoredom of Moab. Lastly, in this command to drive uh, this, the commands before Israel is about to enter the promised land on the plains of Moab, they're yet again east on the eastern border of Canaan we see this command to drive out the inhabitants. And the reason why is that if they do not drive out the inhabitants, God will drive them out because it's the inhabitants that are causing the Israelites to sin over and over again. And so we read in chapter 33 in verses 50 and following, 
And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. But then we read down in verse 55, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. In other words, if Israel doesn't drive these people out, the Lord will drive them out. And tragically, that is... What happens as we will come later in the history of redemption to see Israel and Judah expelled from the promised land? But at this point, all of that is yet to be, and the Israelites have again been amply supplied, amply equipped. God is with them and they're ready to go into the land. That is the tragic tale of unbelief in Numbers. But now I want to close by reflecting on three ways that the New Testament interprets the tragedy in Numbers and applies it to us as the church today. And we will look at these in brief. First, we see three things. Number one, the New Testament views the tragic tale of unbelief in Numbers as a, number one, a warning against false teaching. A warning against false teaching. Jude writes in his epistle, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. You see the three incidents here being destroyed in the wilderness. We see them abandoning themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perishing in Korah's rebellion. This is a great warning against false teaching. Jude is writing to a church that knew about the common salvation, but now he has to write to them to contend for the faith because false teachers have swept in, seeking to lead them astray. And what does Jude do? He says, hey, y'all, do you remember numbers? Remember what happened there? Do you remember what he did to those who went astray and abandoned the Lord? You remember Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt and destroyed those who did not believe afterwards? Do you remember those who abandoned themselves for the gain of Balaam's heir and died in the plague? And those who were wiped out at Korah's rebellion? He's saying those same things are going to happen to you if you follow false teachers today. Also note that that Jude shows us that Jesus was with the people, both as a Savior and as a destroyer. Jesus was with them. And we don't have time to talk about theophanies in the Old Testament, uh, appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But here Jude says Jesus was with them and he was the one who saved them out of the land, but also the one who destroyed them. And here we see the twofold ministry of Christ as the Savior as he came in the first coming and who will come as judge in his second. Peter picks up this theme of false prophets in 2 Peter 2. 
He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. We see Balaam's teaching also mentioned in Revelation 2 as a further warning to the church at Pergamum. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. A constant theme in false teaching then and now is the concept and the teaching of licentiousness, that you can live however you want in sexual immorality and all sorts of sensuality ensues in this. This is, this is all the prosperity message. You name it and claim it and it's yours. You want that car, it's yours. You just name it and claim it. You want that house, it's yours. You name it and claim it. You want that woman to be your wife, you name it and claim it. And... They constantly poo-poo the holiness of God and make it all about money, 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 more, 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 give me, give me, give me sensuality. And it was a problem in the New Testament and is a problem today. And Jesus will destroy those who don't believe. The New Testament sees in the tragic tale of unbelief this warning against false teaching. Secondly, the New Testament sees in the tragic tale of unbelief a warning against apostasy and a call to perseverance. Two critical texts in the New Testament are 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3 and 4. And we read there, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And here we need to understand the importance, the critical importance of reading and studying and preaching the Old Testament because it was written to give us an example, and so many times a negative cautionary example of how not to behave among the people of God. Again, Paul says these things were written down that we might not desire evil as they did and fall as they did and fail to enter the promise. The writer of Hebrews picks up this theme of perseverance and the Christians that he is writing to are tempted to go back to Judaism 
And so he's writing Hebrews about the supremacy of Christ over the old covenant system and the priesthood, showing that Jesus is the great high priest and that Jesus is leading his people into the greater land, into the greater rest. And so the the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to are tempted to fall away. And he picks up the, and uses the tragic tale of Numbers and tells them in Hebrews 3.8, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And the writer goes on to say that these people failed to enter the land because of their unbelief. And we must be careful to exhort one another with the truth of the gospel as long as it is called today that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, fall away and fail to enter the eternal rest of God. And here we're talking about the eternal new creation, heavenly rest in Jesus. And so he concludes, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, justice to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. And so the New Testament has zeroed in on this warning against false teaching and a warning against apostasy with a call to perseverance. And it finally concludes with number three, with a call to faith in Christ, with the hope of eternal life. Jesus says in John 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, referring to the incident with the bronze serpent in Numbers, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We see Christ in the cross prefigured with this serpent that is lifted up, that when the people who were bit by the serpents looked upon it, they would be saved. And all of that is merely an illustration prefiguring the elevation of Christ on the cross, that those who look upon him and believe will have eternal life with him in glory. And Jesus picks up the tale of the manna in John 6 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that the one uh, may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. So the New Testament, in a third way, views the tragic tale of Numbers as a call to have faith in Jesus and take hold of the hope of eternal life, all that the the physical land prefigured. Numbers is a cautionary tale that we need to know today. We need to study it as believers because it is emphasized and seen as a crucial lesson in the New Testament. And I want to end on this point. You know, we, we talked at the beginning that Numbers is the place where Bible reading plans die. And I hope it's not. And I hope you persevere and continue to read the scripture from beginning to end and do it again and again. But more importantly, what we see here is that it doesn't matter how you begin. You can be taken through the most glorious spiritual experiences of your life, even delivered through a Red Sea, and yet be destroyed and fall and fail to enter the land. And in the New Testament, the call is not to look back to where you began, but to look ahead to how you will end. It doesn't matter whether you were baptized as a child or 
early or later on as an adult. It doesn't matter when your spiritual birthday was. What matters is that you persevere in faith to the end, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus and learn from the book of Numbers that you might not fall in the wilderness as this generation tragically did. Let's pray. 